I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In honor of Women's History Month, we review this week constitutional visionaries from landmark eras in American women's history. I'm so honored to be joined by two of America's leading historians of the Constitution and the women's movement. Martha Jones is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor, Professor of History, and a professor at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. She is the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. Martha, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And Lisa Tetro is Associate Professor at Carnegie Mellon University. She is the author of The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory and the Women's Suffrage Movement, 1848 to 1898. She was also a consultant for the National Constitution Center's exhibit, The 19th Amendment, How Women Won the Vote. Lisa, thank you so much for joining. Great to be with you. I'm so looking forward to this conversation and to sharing your light with We the People listeners. Let's begin with constitutional visionaries from the founding era. And Martha, you've identified Elizabeth Freeman and Phyllis Wheatley as two of the figures you'd like to highlight. Please tell us about their constitutional contributions. Thanks so much again, Jeff. And um, I think that it is a innovation for us to um, be forthright about the ways in which black American women uh, really are from the founding shapers of the constitution, shapers of political culture. So thanks for this opportunity to introduce Elizabeth Freeman, who um, for much of her life was referred to as uh, Mumbette. Now here we are in revolutionary era Massachusetts, Elizabeth Freeman is an enslaved woman in Western Massachusetts. Um, she is laboring in the household of one of the era's revolutionary luminaries um, and someone who, while not directly participating in the drafting of revolutionary edicts, is nonetheless someone who is listening in, is hearing um, the sorts of debates um, that folks we've long associated with the founding um, are engaged in. And we know that those debates are turning importantly on principles that we associate with the Enlightenment, universal ideals about the equality of all men, and we'll say parenthetically, all women. And Freeman, as she develops her own grievances um, with respect to her enslavement now, is going to draw upon those ideals, um, especially those that are memorialized in the first constitution of the state of Massachusetts where she lives. Um, and she is indeed going to make the argument with the uh, aid of a lawyer, she's going to make the argument that those ideals about the equality of all men um, apply to her and in essence override and render slavery in Massachusetts unconstitutional. 
and she wins. Um, and so this is a transformative moment for um, not only her own life, um, but for the lives of the many enslaved people still in the state of Massachusetts. Um, and it gives us a sense of why those provisions in the Declaration, in state constitutions and more, um, really are key for developing a radical anti-slavery critique in the United States. And Elizabeth Freeman is there on the ground out of her own concerns and out of her own needs shaping constitutional thinking in Massachusetts. Now, if Freeman is thinking through um, the perspective of law and constitutions, um, Phyllis Wheatley Peters, as we've come to know her because she marries later in life, um, Phyllis Wheatley Peters um, is an enslaved woman, yes, um, a captive from Africa um, who uh, is bought and uh, lives in Boston. But Wheatley is working through um, the genre of the poem. She is a poet, um, a prolific one. Um, and when we uh, probe her words, um, we understand how she too, um, not unlike Elizabeth Freeman, is thinking through and with those universal principles about um, the equality of all and is using her pen um, to not only make a record of her own thought, but to engage with some of the era's most consequential figures, including someone like George Washington. Um, her work will go on to be published, and we still read it and teach it today, but it is a reminder that Black women come to constitutional thinking, to legal thought, um, yes, sometimes by the formality of the courtroom, um, but through many sorts of uh, many sorts of genre, including poetry. Um, we have to look for them beyond the texts of um, law documents and find them where they were. And Phyllis Wheatley is a, a wonderful example of just that. Thank you so much for sharing those inspiring stories with us. I was so struck to learn from Professor Henry Louis Gates's book, Trials of Phyllis Wheatley, America's First Black Poet and Her Encounters with the Founding Fathers, that people were so skeptical that an African-American could have written such brilliant poetry that the city of Boston held a trial about Wheatley could have written her own poems. John Hancock presided. They concluded that she did indeed write her own poems. But Thomas Jefferson was uh, skeptical and continued to call her genius into question. It's an amazing story and look forward to encouraging readers to read her beautiful poetry and to learn more. Lisa Tatro, what figures would you like to add to the founding era and constitutional change? And of course, I'll ask you to talk about one of the most famous of them, Abigail Adams. Yeah, um, it's lovely to be with you. And thanks to Martha for showing how many people on the ground themselves were part of this story that we often forget. Um, and I'm just going to add some more by way not of the voices of the people on the ground, but by way of the words of John Adams for a moment. He is uh, writing with some of the other constitutional founders, and they can't figure out what the voting basis for voting ought to be. And someone writes him and says, um, you know, here's my idea. And John Adams writes back and says, wow, that's really interesting. I wish I had time to think about this. I'm a bit overwhelmed at the moment. I'm creating this new government. And they 
are very clearly responding in this to the fact that there are lots of people on the ground insisting that they belong in the words of the Constitution. They belong in the words of we the people. And so, unfortunately, many of their names and many of their documents don't get recorded. They didn't win court cases. They didn't write books of poetry. But they were nonetheless on the ground insisting that we are part of the people. And that clearly shaped the behavior and the concerns and the actions of the founding fathers, because we can see that concern in their letters, even if we can't see it in the documents left by people on the ground. And so you have John Adams writing with James Sullivan, and he would say, But let us suppose that the whole community of every age, rank, sex, and condition has the right to vote. So clearly they're considering this at the time. There are people demanding that, which is part of why they're considering it. And then he will say later, we must have property as a requirement for voting. The same reasoning which will induce you to admit all men who have no property to vote ought to admit women and children. For generally speaking, women and children have as good a judgment and as independent minds as the women and men or as the men who are wholly destitute of property. So we see again here this sense that it wasn't just a foregone conclusion that not everybody was included. It was certainly heavily decided in that direction, but people on the ground are challenging that. And I also want to point out here, though, that when Adam says women and children have just as good a judgment, he is repeating another problem which will constantly happen, which is that when he refers to women, he means white women and not the black women who are simultaneously part of this process or the other many immigrant women who are part of this process. So I would just like to give a shout out to all the nameless forgotten people who on the ground were shaping this process, and they clearly did so through the letters of John Adams and, every, and all the other founders. And those, those, those people who we've forgotten did have at least some people's voices who got remembered, as Martha has already shown us some of them. And there's another, which is John Adams' wife himself, Abigail Adams, who is, while men are off uh, at the Constitutional Congress, and as they're off at the, the founding of the nation and the declaring of independence and the Articles of Confederation, um, women are home. Uh, you know, the women of these men tending to all of the things that are keeping the nation going. They are holding down farms and running farms and uh, providing provisions. And they understand, at least these free white women, that they are also part of this nation. They are building this new nation as it is taking shape. And Abigail Adams will give voice to that as well. But it's um, her documents, of course, that get remembered given her stature. Um, And she will say to John Adams in her letters where she's writing back and forth about all the business she's attending to, they clearly have an open political relationship where they discuss political philosophy, the ideas about government, how government ought to be founded. It's not that Abigail Adams is not part of this discussion. And she will say to John Adams, I beg you, you know, when you create your code of laws, men will be tyrants. So you must remember the ladies and not be as tyrannical as your British predecessors. And people often laugh this off by saying, you know, John Adams writes back and says, ha ha ha, I cannot but laugh at your suggestion. But she's quite serious. She will then write Mercy Otis Warren back and forth and say, can you believe he laughed? And Mercy Otis Warren will write back. She's equally engaged in many of these um, questions about what shall the governance and what shall the equality of the new nation look like. And they continue to have this conversation. So what I want to point out is this was a very robust conversation that did not only involve white men. Thanks for reminding us of the important relationship between Abigail Adams and Mercy Otis Warren, whom John Adams called the poetical genius of the revolution. And that friendship of those two great women and John Adams was central to the constitutional understanding of the founding. 
Let us turn now to the abolition and antebellum period. And among the figures that you've highlighted, Martha Jones, are Jerina Lee, Harriet Tubman, and Sojourner Truth. Tell us about them. Well, that's a wonderful um, triad because I think it really does help us appreciate um, the many positions from which um, black women come to the question now of um, the new nation, um, yes, governance, yes, rights, yes, political culture. And all of these women in their own way um, that you've invoked uh, remind us that black women too need a political philosophy. They need a point of view that will ultimately undergird their organizing, that will ultimately undergird their activism. And Jarena Lee, um, who in the earliest decades of the 19th century is an itinerant preacher in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, is someone who, um, after many, many miles and many, many years um, on the road, um, in the pulpits, um, under the trees, uh, in the grove, and more, um, bringing converts into her denomination, um, sits down in the 1830s to uh, write a memoir. And here we learn about how her thinking has developed, about her position, her ideas are um, very much um, a starting point for the view we refer to today in academic speak as intersectionality, which is to say Jarena Lee is someone who is thinking through the problem of her own life's ambition um, as inflected by racism and sexism simultaneously, and her struggle um, to win a license to preach, to win formal authority within her denomination, um, is a starting place for the development of this political philosophy that will be taken hold of by um, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of um, black women Christians across the 19th century, but will also spill out um, into the secular realm as black women are contemplating their place in the political realm. You mentioned Harriet Tubman, and I think um, if Jarena Lee is an example of a woman um, born free but under constrained circumstances in the North, um, Tubman now is born enslaved um, on the eastern shore of Maryland, and her coming to political consciousness is also a part of our story. Um, why? Because Tubman is not only remembered for um, her extraordinary heroism in bringing many, many enslaved people from her community to freedom um, at great risk um, when she might have just stolen her own freedom um, and stayed in the North. Um, but she's a reminder that um, enslaved women, too, um, understand the institution of slavery, um, have developed their own critiques of slavery, like Elizabeth Freeman in Massachusetts, right, framed by a set of ideals, while um, oftentimes kept from enslaved women in their lived experiences, are certainly framing and fueling the work of someone like Tubman, who, once she does secure her own freedom, is there in the midst of an abolitionist scene 
in which those ideals are being held up, tested, used, in fact, to challenge the institution of slavery. And so, um, again, it is a reminder that while Tubman herself does not leave an extensive written record, we can understand from what she does the way in which her efforts, but frankly, the efforts of hundreds and thousands of enslaved Americans over the course of um, many, many decades um, are pushing on the Constitution, um, challenging Americans in high places to indeed confront their own understandings, their own sense of the limits and the possibilities of the Constitution. Is the Constitution a pro-slavery document or an anti-slavery document? Is the kind of debate that someone like Harriet Tubman um, forces onto the table? Lisa, for the abolition and antebellum period, you've called our attention to Lucy Stone, Angelina Grimke, and Mariah Stewart. Please tell us about them. They will also be part of this foment of people who are left out of the of the founding and who at the founding and still now are insisting that they must be um, included in its promises and in its guarantees and in its governance. And I'll start with Mariah Stewart just to join with the glorious women that Martha was talking about. And she's a free woman in the North, um, lives in Massachusetts, and uh, is not elite. Um, She will be one of the first women to begin giving important political speeches about the condition of African-Americans in the North and also about the plight of African-American women themselves. She will be the first to speak before a mixed-sex audience, which at the time was considered quite scandalous. Those audiences were called promiscuous. And one of the things she points out in her very powerful political oratory is that you can have words on a paper that promise one thing, and you can let me into those words on a paper that promise one thing, like freedom, but unless you invest it with meaning, the words don't mean much. And she will essentially say, you know, we are free here in the North, and I'll tell you what, our condition's not much better, right? I Your, your talk about slavery, you know, is one manifestation of the kinds of racism that African-Americans live under. And until that racism is eradicated, your words don't mean much. And I hear the echoes of her today sort of thinking about the ways in which we can have laws, we can have words on paper. But until we invest those with life and meaning and truth, um, they are pretty hollow words. And I would go next to Angelina Grimke, um, who herself comes from an enslaved, uh, she herself is a, a free white woman, um, but born into a family that owns slaves in South Carolina, will go north uh, with her sister Sarah to try to find uh, what is the right path to God in the midst of a wave of religious revivalism in this era, and will come over the course of her time to realize that she must also speak against slavery. But she will also always understand in a way that um, much of the white women's rights movement that will proceed from this, that um, this has to be, she's one of the white women who insists this has to be also about recognizing the humanity of black women. And she will say that over and over again in her speeches. And she will say to white women fighting slavery, until you look into your own souls and you think about whether you recognize your black sister as a sister, then you've got work to do before you go attack the word of slavery. So I also think of the white women who tried to live up to the intersectional promise that um, black women were calling for. Um, And I think sometimes we forget the white women who were involved in that project for a very, very long time. And I would think of Angelina Grimke as one of those people. 
And then lastly, Lucy Stone comes out of what will be more conventionally known as, you know, the women's rights movement, which is really just a women's rights movement of this era. And she will be interesting moving forward because she is an incredibly important abolitionist and women's rights speaker. She will uh, start to question a lot of the founding documents and argue that they were written in favor of men, including the Bible. But she will not be present and is therefore forgotten at another moment in the same so-called women's rights movement, where uh, some women meet in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, a little tiny hamlet in the, in the Finger Lakes. And they will um, hold what is considered to be the first women's rights convention in the U.S., but it's not the beginning of women's rights activism. And I think much of what we've talked about today is underlining that point. But at that occasion, they will rewrite some of the founding documents and they will say, rather than listing a bunch of grievances against the king and the Declaration of Independence, they will list grievances against man. And they will rewrite that document to say, um, all men and women are created equal. And um, and the thing is, that story is such a bigger story of a kind of constitutional challenge that women will issue to that. We can't just narrow it to the story of Seneca Falls. And Lucy Stone is one of the people that we forget who's also part of that challenge, but wasn't at that very hastily called really local impromptu convention, but was very much part of this movement. Um, and she'll be quite interesting as we get into the post-war period in terms of her constitutional analysis. And we can talk about that next. Well, we turn now from the abolition to the Women's suffrage movement, of course, the two were closely connected, as both of you have noted. One vivid demonstration of the connection comes from a famous quotation from Sarah Grimke, Angelina's sister, which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg often quoted, and that, of course, was, but I ask no favors for my sex, I surrender not our claim to equality, all I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks and permit us to stand upright powerful words. And Martha Jones, please tell us about the women's suffrage movement, and in particular, some of the figures that you've highlighted, including Mary Church Terrell, Haley Quinn Brown, and Ida B. Wells. Well, we've um, we fast-forwarded um, to the not only the years after the Civil War, but to the latter years of the 19th century. Out of the uh, debates um, that follow the war has emerged a, a factionalized scene in which American women and some men have organized into suffrage associations. Um, but for the African-American women about whom I write, the suffrage associations will turn out not to be the most um, accommodating, um, the most suitable places for their political activism. Black women will continue to work importantly on political questions through their church communities. They will uh, begin to develop a club network that begins in the relief work that black women are organizing to do during the Civil War. Um, That network will continue to be Um, a place for black women's political organizing. Um, That along with the rise of historically black colleges and universities, um, I think all brings us to a remarkable moment in 1896 when as women who have organized under the uh, banner of women's suffrage have created a new consolidated national association. African-American women come together to create the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. And here enter figures like Mary Church Terrell, 
um, Hallie Quinn Brown, Ida B. Wells, and many others um, who we associate importantly um, with the building of this black women's political organization, an organization that will be 300,000 plus women strong uh, by the eve of the First World War. Um, but one question might be, why does someone like Mary Church Terrell, um, educated at Oberlin, um, a teacher in Washington, D.C., an educational activist, Ida Wells, um, a journalist, um, great anti-lynching crusader, Hallie Quinn Brown, um, and a professor at Wilberforce University, um, an AME church activist. Why did these women need to come together to create their own association? Well, even in that brief sketch, I think you can hear about how wide-ranging, how uh, multifaceted their political concerns are. And the National Association of Colored Women um, creates the sort of institution that permits them to continue to work, yes, on women's suffrage. Um, Terrell will be um, among the most um, strident of black women suffragists in the years leading to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. But she is as passionate, for example, about winning anti-lynching legislation in Congress. Um, these are women who need a more capacious space in which to realize their politics. And over time, will also very deliberately carve out a space that is not animated by, framed by, um, informed by anti-Black racism, the anti-Black racism that will, I think, too often animate the women's suffrage movement and the campaign for the 19th Amendment going forward. Um, so those are women who are suffragists um, who oftentimes don't enjoy, if you will, the moniker of suffragists. And I worked with students uh, last year in conjunction with the Wikipedia Foundation um, to go in and to edit the Wikipedia entries for these women to ensure that the word suffrage and suffragist and women's votes were part of their express biographies because they don't organize expressly under the umbrella of suffrage. We, some historians, had mistakenly thought that they were indifferent to that cause, but to the contrary. These are women who are deeply committed to winning women's political power generally and women's votes in particular, and, uh, but they do so under the auspices of their independent organization. Fascinating. Thank you so much for calling attention to those stories and what an important project to emphasize their central contribution to the suffrage movement. Lisa, some of the figures you've highlighted include Victoria Woodhull and Virginia Minor, Mabel Pingwa Lee, and Gertrude Bonin. Tell us about those and others. Yeah, the anniversary of the 19th Amendment has just come and gone. Um, as we know, as we all gathered at the Constitution Center to mark that occasion. Um, but one of the really interesting things that happens after the American Civil War is that the Constitution starts to, for the first time, be a piece, be a document, be a governing charter that people think they can use to regulate voting. And what's shocking to most people is that they think that the Constitution is where voting is regulated, and that, in fact, the Constitution is what grants the so-called right to vote. And, in fact, that's not in the Constitution, and still to this day is not in the Constitution. But freed people's demands for voting and other people's demands for voting mean that for the first time in in the aftermath of the war in the 1860s, Congress has a debate about the voting rights of citizens. 
And the 14th Amendment will be incredibly important. It will make African-Americans citizens. It will make birthright citizenship, which will mean that people now who are born in the United States, even if they are um, Chinese-American or if they are other things, can become citizens of the United States. And and that will kick off a whole new wave, those Reconstruction Amendments, um, which established the 13th Establishing Emancipation, the 14th Citizenship, Equal Protection Under the Laws and Due Process, and then the 15th, which we think of as black voting rights or male, black male voting rights, will create such a sea change in constitutional governments that it will have um, a profound effect on all of the kinds of agitation that people will engage in from um, from this moment until the present. So much of the women's rights victories, civil rights victories are all built on these three Reconstruction Amendments, and particularly the 14th. But I want to go to the 15th, um, which is black male voting. And this will shift um, the, but it's it really what it says is you cannot discriminate in voting on the basis of race. Okay, so states who still govern voting are not allowed to uh, discriminate on the basis of race. And so many, many black men begin voting, but all those states also still say that you have to um, be male. So many black women and many other women do not begin voting. But um, so what they do is try to press for some of them anyway. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony say, you know what? The Constitution has just changed. It now can govern the voting of citizens. And we should press for a 16th Amendment to enfranchise women. And Lucy Stone, who we talked about a minute ago, will argue, no, that's unconstitutional. And she will support a state's rights approach where we go through all each individual state and wipe the word male, um, not through one big sweeping constitutional amendment, but through a ground game. And I just want to point out that inside the suffrage movement, the white suffrage movement, the kind of mainstream movement, we often talk about a difference of strategy, but we don't make that strategy a constitutional debate, which it absolutely was. It was a debate about what part of the Constitution and what part of governance allowed the regulation of voting. So I just want to insert here that suffragists themselves are engaging in a robust conversation, white suffragists, about who regulates voting and what is the Constitution's role in this? And they don't agree. Lucy Stone will say you can't use a federal amendment. Then, um, as this debate's going on, along comes Victoria Woodhull and Virginia Minor, two fascinating figures. Victoria Woodhull will be the first woman to run for president in 1872. Um, She is a free lover, a sex radical, opens the first Wall Street brokerage firm, uh, speaks to the dead uh, as an occult figure. And Virginia Minor, who's an ordinary suffragist on the ground in uh, Missouri, will basically say, you know what, the 14th and the 15th Amendment already enfranchise women. And they'll pioneer a new strategy whereby... If you can't discriminate in voting, and it is a right, and we are citizens, then you can't discriminate in voting. And what's interesting is this will go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. It's called the New Departure. And the Supreme Court will declare in Happersett v. Minor that voting is not a right of citizenship. It is not in the Constitution, and it does not um, bear upon the rights of citizens. And so, you know, very early, these women are testing the limits of what the Constitution allows and doesn't allow. And then what I want to point out is that the numbers of women who will go on to test those things based on their own identities, because much of this is identity-based, right? What what criteria can you meet? What state requirements? What what um, what citizenship? And I want to give a shout out to the new work by Kathleen Cahill, Recasting the Vote, where she talks about the indigenous and Chinese and um, Latinx women who are also pressing the limits of the Constitution. And Mabel Pinkwali is going to be doing this, um, arguing for citizenship and her inclusion in those promises, as will Gertrude Bonin, Zitka Lassa, 
um, and Indigenous women who are always going to have a very mixed relationship to their inclusion in those um, constitutional promises because that means colonization. And many of them are like, I don't want your constitutional promises. I want you out of my land. So that will be an ongoing debate inside Indigenous communities as well. So I just want to point out that the the Reconstruction moment creates a new constitutional moment in the United States with those very profound three amendments that will shape the activism of people to come who will draw upon and try to creatively breathe life into those amendments and will transform them far beyond what the people who wrote them intended. Uh, well, we now turn to the 20th century and to our final movement, which is the Equal Rights Movement and the Movement for Black Women's Voting Rights. And here, some of the figures that you've highlighted, Martha Jones, include Pauli Murray, Fannie Lou Hamer, Diane Nash, and Shirley Chisholm. Tell us about those. A part of this story now turning on um, the 15th Amendment uh, from 1870 and the 19th Amendment from 1920, um, for African-American women, the question is, what is the force of these amendments, if any, in their uh, political lives? And the lesson out of the fall of 1920 in that election cycle is that when black women look out across the national landscape, what they know is that um, too many of them remain disenfranchised now um, by state laws that um, poll taxes uh, literacy tests, understanding clauses, grandfather clauses that are um, going to continue to keep them from the polls as they have kept black men from the polls in many places since the 1890s. And that intimidation and violence on and around Election Day persists. Nothing in the 15th and 19th Amendment curbs these uh, facets of voting rights. Um, and in fact, they come to define voting rights for too many black Americans. So here, black women after 1920 are left, if you will, to build a new movement for voting rights. And it is a movement they will build alongside African-American men, much of it importantly associated with the uh, modern civil rights revolution, whether it's the NAACP legal campaign uh, that is using the Constitution to defeat grandfather clauses, using the Constitution to defeat whites-only primaries, amending the Constitution to render poll taxes now uh, no longer enforceable in the United States. There is that facet of the campaign. Um, there um, are... Um, those facets of the campaign which pull on a long-standing tradition of engaging the ground game of American politics, right? Testing, pushing the limits, insisting, as Lisa Tetro alluded to, insisting on breathing life into the 15th and 19th Amendments by turning out in every election cycle, attempting to register, attempting to cast ballots, sometimes casting ballots, joining the Republican Party and moving the needle. But by the time we get to the 1940s, we, we in a sense, 
right, fuse um, this story that has turned or has been framed up until this point in our conversation is one about the struggle for women's political authority, women's political power rights and the right to vote, now fuses with that movement that we come to call civil rights. And so by the 1940s, we have the emergence now, yes, of legal architects like Polly Murray, who will reframe that intersectional critique that someone like Jarena Lee had been working on in the early 19th century as the problem of Jane Crow, right? That intersection of women's oppression and uh, Black American oppression that works in very specific ways in the life of someone like Murray, an activist of the left turned lawyer, turned litigator, uh, and civil rights activist um, turned Episcopal minister before her life is done. It's an extraordinary lifetime. Um, but she brings into focus for this modern civil rights moment the ways in which it's impossible to pull apart concerns of race and concerns of uh, gender as this movement develops. Diane Nash, the great architect um, behind the scenes of this movement, mobilizing the foot soldiers that are essential, again, not only to insisting on um, what the Constitution has promised, but extracting right out of Congress um, legislation like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that indeed give teeth right to those constitutional amendments that had too long been left on the sidelines um, as Black Americans wage struggles for equality. Fannie Lou Hamer reminds us that we are in the midst of the 20th century and the technology has changed for how it is that American women are going to wage their struggles, how they're going to bring their struggles into the lives of ordinary Americans. And Hamer understands the television camera. Um, she understands um, how to use the national media, that ability of television to broadcast the voting rights struggle of black Americans into living rooms across the nation. She does so very dramatically at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, and folks can watch that. It's eight minutes um, on YouTube that is absolutely riveting, but it is an illustration of how Hamer, who is an organizer and an architect of voting rights advocacy in Mississippi, um, also understands that this is a national movement and that if Congress is going to be moved, if Lyndon Johnson is going to be moved, she's going to have to get her message into the hearts and the minds. It's an old abolitionist ploy, but it is an effective one, and Hamer understands that. Let me just briefly um, not forget Shirley Chisholm, because Chisholm is going to bring us now into those extraordinary scenes that unfold in the wake of the passage of the Voting Rights Act. If Black Americans have known for decades that the 15th and the 19th Amendment needed teeth, uh, in order for them to actually realize the promise of those amendments. Now Chisholm is going to breathe life into that Voting Rights Act, first by running for Congress and being the first black woman to be seated in Congress in 1968. But I think as importantly, 
1972, four years later, Chisholm is going to run for, um, uh, vie for the Democrats' nomination for um, president in that year. Now, I don't think Chisholm precisely thinks she's going to win the nomination, but that's not the point, that she is an organizer and she understands that her candidacy will ignite, help to ignite a newly empowered black electorate that the Voting Rights Act has made possible. And indeed, it is in uh, Chisholm's very being, it is in her charisma, um, it is in her eloquence, it is in her commitment that millions of black Americans um, come to presidential politics wholly anew. One of the last things I'll leave you with is that it is Shirley Chisholm in 1972 who launches the political career um, of a young uh, newcomer to politics in that year, and that is today's Representative Barbara Lee um, in Congress. Barbara Lee begins her political career as a volunteer for Shirley Chisholm. And if we've done nothing else in this conversation, we've I think, made the case that this is a story across many, many generations, women handing to the next generation, preparing the next generation, bringing in the next generation. And Shirley Chisholm does that with extraordinary force. Thank you so much for emphasizing in such an inspiring way the intergenerational aspect of the stories that we're telling. And uh, Lisa Tetro, maybe you can complete that intergenerational story by Uh, emphasizing the connection between the 15th and 19th Amendment, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, and and, and the fight for women's equality in the courts. And in particular, uh, March 15th was the birthday of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we lost recently in honor of her. Perhaps you could tell us about some of the women that she cited as an inspiration for her work as an advocate, including Alice Paul and Pauli Murray. Yeah, so um, to go back to the Constitution, right, these three founding amendments, uh, or these three Reconstruction Amendments, which many people call the second founding of our nation, will be the amendments uh, along with what will become the 19th that people will draw upon. And the 19th Amendment um, passes uh, and was ratified in 1920, and it says there may be no discrimination in voting on the basis of sex. That means that all of the other obstacles that have recently been thrown up on the ground level, remember there's this state, uh, state federal uh, dynamism, poll taxes, literacy tests, are not cleared by the 19th Amendment. And so many people still ensnared in those things can't vote. So those women uh, will come to the main Alice Paul, who's one of the leading suffragists, you know, known for being so-called radical, I would say militant is probably a more apt word. Uh, and say, we still can't vote. Let's keep this voting fight up. And Alice Paul will say, no, um, it's not my fight. Women have won the right to vote. She clearly is coding women as white. But she will take the logic of the 15th, which has become the 19th Amendment, and she will try now to extend it into the Equal Rights Amendment. And she will say, okay, if we may not have discrimination in voting on the basis of race in voting, if we may not have discrimination in voting on the basis of sex, Let's create an amendment that says we may not have discrimination at all on the basis of sex, right? Not just in voting, but at all. And she will, in 1923, go to Seneca Falls and unveil the Equal Rights Amendment as the next big phase of the women's movement, right? Which, again, is a women's movement, but they like to claim it. Um, 
And what she will find is that gets nowhere, as we know. That has never still been ratified. And so both African-Americans and white women and black women and lots of other folks are casting about for a constitutional way to claim their equality. How do they get their equality legally protected? Right. The Equal Rights Amendment didn't work. And people try to breathe that kind of life into the 19th Amendment, but it won't go anywhere. The courts keep striking it down. No, it's only limited to voting. You can discriminate on the basis of sex in any way you want because you should, because men and women are different, right? And so, and there's also this sense from Plessy v. Ferguson in um, at the end of the 19th century that you should also have a separate um, arrangement for African Americans uh, and whites because they're different, right? But it's equal to have these separate arrangements. And what all these people will come about and try to argue, including all the people that that Martha's talked about and that I'll add here, um, are basically arguing, no, that is not equality. This separate treatment is not equality. We must break down this separate treatment. And so they're casting about in the Constitution for a basis for arguing that they must be equally treated, right? And what they, what they, what both um, the civil rights movement and um, the kind of, if we think of kind of the white women's rights movement or white women's rights activists, will seize upon eventually is the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg often gets the credit for inventing, or not inventing, but um, getting the court to accept the fact that the the Fourteenth Amendment, which says we must have equal protection under the laws, means that you cannot differentially treat men and women. Um, and but the thing is, it's really um, an idea that's pioneered before Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's pioneered by a black woman, by Polly Murray, whose biography Martha Jones just gave us. This idea that we can apply the 14th Amendment both to the idea that there must not be um, differential treatment because that is unequal of African-Americans and there must not be differential treatment across gender because that is unequal. And so um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg will in, um, sort of pick up on this idea that Pauli Murray pioneered in which um, the great uh, justice, um, the lawyer then turned justice Thurgood Marshall will use in Brown v. Board, right? The 14th Amendment, this is not equal treatment. And then this will go on to undergird all kinds of decisions going forward. And uh, Notorious RBG will use the 14th Amendment to get the court to, for the first time, to recognize that differential treatment, uh, according to sex, is in fact not equal. It's not different but equal, uh, in the words of um, separate but equal, in the words of Plessy. And um, she will, of course, be citing all of the women who came before her, although she forgets um, a number of people. Um, but um, she will cite Polly Murray and others as the, you know, the generations that gave her the thought, the intellect, you know, the intellectual legacy and the, um, the creativity to come up with a way to challenge the court. And then I just want to throw out that as RBG breathes life in the Constitution into the 14th Amendment may not be something that discriminates on the basis of um, sex. We then get the pioneering of a new idea called the right to privacy through the 14th Amendment and the 9th Amendment, which will undergird um, going forward all of the decisions about reproductive access to abortion and to birth control and to gay rights and to all kinds of other things. So, um, and that will be pioneered by people like Estelle Griswold and James Obergefell and Jane Roe and, um, you know, Norma McCorvey, who will then breathe life into this as something that must also support the women, the right of women to their bodies. So we just, there's the 14th Amendment is such a critical piece of how all of these strategies that people have had for centuries finally find teeth in the Constitution um, and then in the courts. So it's the 14th Amendment really becomes pivotal to this story. 
And there is a really, if you want to learn more about the 14th, I would recommend you watch the new great uh, series on Netflix by Will uh, Smith called Amend, which is all about the 14th Amendment. Uh, and Martha and I both make cameo appearances in that. But um, I, I guess what I want to undergird here, I, I've gone on too long, but what I want to undergird is that these fights all start to try to leverage the Constitution and the 14th Amendment in order to breathe life into the things they've been arguing for forever, but could not use the original Constitution to accomplish. Thank you so much, Martha Jones and Lisa Tetro, for a wonderful discussion of the inspiring women who transformed the Constitution and made real its promise that all people are created equal. Dear We the People listeners, please learn more by reading Martha Jones and Lisa Tetro's books, including Martha Jones's Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, and Lisa Tetro's The Myth of Seneca Falls Memory and the Women's Suffrage Movement. And of course, read the primary documents, the sources of the inspiring women who we have talked about today. Martha Jones and Lisa Tetro, thank you so much for all the light you've shown, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's been great to be with you as always. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Angelis Torres, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere, who is hungry for constitutional illumination and thoughtful debate, and who isn't. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Thanks so much to those of you who have been giving $5 or $10 just to signal your support of the mission. And please join the National Constitution Center family by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or giving any donation at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.